please take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at the believer's unflappable confidence in the future. The believer's unflappable confidence in the future. As I've said for a few weeks, we're in the middle of studying this this first long sentence in the book of Ephesians. And it's the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. It begins in verse 3 and extends all the way through verse 14. And it is so dense and so rich, we have had to stop and pause and use the scuba instead of the snorkel. And we're going to do that again today. I am so blessed by this sentence. It was it was intimidating, honestly, as a preacher to look at and to say, how are we going to break this down and look at it? But as we have kind of pulled it apart to look at its constituent parts and how they relate together, it has been such an unspeakable blessing in my own heart. We haven't done this in a few weeks, so I want to read the whole sentence to you. And remember, we have punctuation marks in the English. In the Greek, it's one long run-on sentence. And it's gloriously so. He just strings... Thought to theology to thought to theology. It's wonderful. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Every time I read that, I just want to say, wow, what statements of theological truth and depth. We're going to focus our attention today on verses 9 and 10. Look back there for a moment. God, the Father, remember, God the Father is the subject of almost every verb in this in this sentence, and Jesus is the means of almost every action. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. That's God the Father purposing in Christ. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, 
things in the heavens, and things on the earth. Well, anyone who's been to a movie knows what takes place before the movie begins. It's a long series of trailers or previews for other movies. By the way, have you ever wondered why a preview is called a trailer? I was curious, so I did some research this week on that and found out there's actually a reason. Originally, movies in the early 1900s had previews of coming movies at the end of the movie, hence it was called a trailer. Well, they found out that people, when they finished the movie, began getting up and leaving and not watching the previews, so they moved the trailers to the beginning, and now trailers are previews. That's for free. (laughs) Movie trailers irritate me, i got to confess. They're crafted in order to leave out significant details so that you will come and find out those details in the movie. The Bible also contains previews of the future, previews of coming attractions, of what will happen. But different than a movie trailer, a biblical preview is crafted to give significant details, not leave them out. And like a movie trailer, biblical previews are crafted to make us want to experience the full reality of the coming event. It's like telling a child what's coming on a trip to Disneyland or something. You begin telling them what they're going to enjoy and it builds anticipation and hope for that event. There's no question that fear of the future, even future events, is one of the greatest sources of people's anxiety. There's a German proverb you've no doubt heard, fear makes the wolf bigger than he is. I'll never forget reading in um, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs how after some of those who had been persecuted for Christ were prevented from dying, they, they, their lives were, were saved, and they came back and talked to the church, they, they, they had this saying, fear of persecution is always worse than the actual persecution. In the same way, we fear the future so easily. We look to the news and we begin to say, what is going on and what's going to happen? Now, let me give you a little breakdown of this sentence from a couple of perspectives, and I think it'll make sense to you while we're thinking about the future. There's two major structural ways to look at this long Greek sentence. The first is by the work of each member of the Trinity. You can outline it by looking at the work of the Father, you can look at the work of the Son, and you can look at the work of the Spirit. We'll be looking at the work of the Spirit in our inheritance next week. You can also look at it from the perspective of past, present, and future. We were predestined in the past, we experience redemption and forgiveness in the present, and now in verses 9 and 10, he tells us what's coming in the future. Paul changes the focus of his theological lens here from the predestination of our salvation in the past to our current forgiveness and redemption before Christ in the present and now to the believer's future in verses 9 and 10. And these insights are another expression of what he began back in verse 3 by telling us these are spiritual blessings. 
And the whole point of this sentence is to say, you have been blessed, you possess as a Christian certain spiritual blessings that are true in heaven and true in the spiritual realm that you may not see, taste, smell, touch, hear. The five senses won't work with these, but they certainly affect our sensations. And he says, if you will understand and know what's true and what you possess in the spiritual realm, it will and should have dramatic effect on how you think, how you feel, how you process this world. Why is this important? Well, Paul is writing to an audience living, frankly, in a hopeless culture. I know, I I have the news channels, I I, I know, I have papers, I see what's happening. Ephesus was no different, nor was the ancient world during Paul's day. Rome was a dominating, wicked, dark force of evil over that entire culture. They had no voting, they had no elections, they had nothing to look forward to with reference to the government changing to their liking. It would have been easy to despair. Not only that, in just a couple of decades from the writing of this, being a Christian was going to be a capital offense soliciting your life. It was a a capital offense you were killed for being a believer in Christ. That's important because they lived in a a dark and nasty culture. And I think sometimes we, we look at scriptures and think, well, we live in a tough time. They had it pretty easy. Oh, no, that... They, they had it far worse than you and me. So as Paul begins to explain to them in this amazing list of spiritual blessings given by God, he is very aware of their cultural fears, their societal fears, their anxieties that would lead them possibly to despair about what was happening, about what was coming, about the future. You know, sometimes it's easy for us in America to think that our situation is unique. We can fear about who's in the White House, who's in the Congress, what policies are being developed, what election is upcoming. But how you and I as believers think about and process and anticipate the future is directly related, listen, not to the news cycle but to what God has told us would happen in his word. And in these two verses, he lays it out very simply for our own comfort and confidence. Anxiety and uneasiness about the future of America can easily grip a believer's mind. And just as the dark and oppressive overreach of the Roman government threatened to rob a believer in Paul's day of his or her perspective... We experience the same thing today. So, here in verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us that God has blessed us, get this, with the spiritual blessing of, drumroll, knowing the future. He tells us what's going to happen. Try this on tomorrow at the water cooler. Hey, I want to tell you, I know with absolute certainty what's going to happen in the future. See what kind of conversation that will elicit. That's exactly what he tells us. And if we know this, and if we remember this, and if we believe this, listen, friends, it will provide tremendous confidence in God and in his future. So we're going to break this 
these two verses down into three sources of a Christian's confidence in God's future. Now, I crafted that proposition very carefully because it's not just the future, it's God's future. Three sources of a Christian's confidence in God's future. And let me just tell you, I am like you, and I read the papers, and I watch the news cycles, and I know what kind of anxiety that can generate. And this is a solution and a tonic theologically to make us think confidently and correctly about tonight, tomorrow, next month, next year, and the end of time. Three sources of a Christian's confidence in God's future. The first is in the beginning of verse 9, the unveiled mystery of God's will. The unveiled mystery of God's will. Verse 9. He, that is God the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will. In verse 9, Paul points his camera from the past to the present, now to the future. And again, every word contains a world of meaning. And these words are given to explain God's spiritual blessings to us. If we look at this and say, that doesn't make any sense, I'm confused, I don't know what it means, then we, we're robbing ourselves of the blessing that Paul intends for us to enjoy and know about so that we can be blessed by the Lord. Look at the verb in verse 9. He made known. He made known. Like all the other verbs in this long sentence, it does not sit by itself in isolation, it's actually connected as a string of verbs. And this one is connected to the previous verse, which is, has a verb translated lavished. God lavished wisdom and insight and grace on us. Now he makes known something to us, put those together, and it points to God as a gracious giver. He's not stingy about knowledge. He's not stingy about perspective. He's not stingy about giving us the data we need so that our, our anxieties are quelled and our confidence is bolstered. God is abounding in grace and divine insight. And very simply, listen, he wants you to know what he wants you to know so that you're not anxious. As a part of God's wisdom and insight in verse 8, he grants us now in verse 9 and 10 a view of the future. So what is it that God made known to us? He made known to us, the next phrase, the mystery of his will. This brings us to a really important word, and we have to do a little homework here for a second. This is very, very critical to understand the term mystery, because Paul's going to use it five more times in the book of Ephesians. It's the word in the Greek, mysterion. It occurs 28 times in the Greek New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. Paul uses it, listen, six times in Ephesians. Proportionally, that's more in such a small book than he uses it in any other book. Its meaning, though, is not, it's probably not what you expect it to be. We typically think of a mystery as a secret to be discovered or revealed. It's, it's mysterious. There are mystery novels and mystery movies and 
Agatha Christie and you figure out these mysteries. Some of you are old enough to remember who that is. But that's not the meaning. The Greek word mysterion actually means something that was hidden and now is revealed. Was hidden, now revealed. Or unclear, now very clear. That's mysterion. That's mysterious. That's the mystery, rather. It's not a mystery to be solved. It's not a Rubik's Cube or an Agatha Christie novel. It's something previously unrevealed but now has been revealed in Christ and in the gospel, canonized in the New Testament. Said another way, it was something not fully or clearly revealed in the Old Testament, now, but now is clearly revealed in the New Testament. And Paul tells us here that it is God's specific will that the Lord is revealing to us. The mystery of his will. It doesn't mean he's up there playing hide and seek with his mystery, with his will. It means he did have things in his mind that he didn't reveal to the Old Testament saints, but now he has fully revealed them to those of us on this side of the new covenant. It speaks of God's sovereign intentionality for this world and our lives individually. That's his will. His, his will is his sovereign intentionality for this world and our lives individually. His will includes the whole universe, and his will includes where you're sitting and what you're going to have for lunch today. Macro and micro. Now, the New Testament points to several dimensions or kind of, kind of a catalogs of God's mysteries that he revealed in the New Testament. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, I want you to know how great a struggle, he says to them, I have on your behalf and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, listen, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is... Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So one of the foundational things we need to remember about the mystery of God is it's Jesus himself. Oh, the Old Testament knew about a coming Messiah. They knew about a hopeful, in Isaiah 53, future sacrifice that would account for everyone once for all time. But they didn't know it was going to be Jesus from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And we find out in the New Testament... The man Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. That was hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Similarly, in Ephesians, flip over to chapter 3 for a moment because this brings several things together. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, Mysterion refers to the plan of including Jews and Gentiles together in the church in one body. I won't go into this until we get there, but in chapter 5, verse 32, it refers to the union of Christ and the church. And in chapter 6, verse 19, it refers to the gospel of Christ itself. So there are several dimensions of this, but look at what Paul says, because the language is really similar in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, and in these first 12 verses of chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, here it is, that by revelation... Not by reading and studying his Old Testament. This was new. By revelation, 
there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, which part of the mystery is he talking about here? Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight, because God was revealing it to him directly, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. There's the definition of mystery. It wasn't made known to them. It's now made known to us in Christ. It's been revealed to us, to his holy apostles and the prophets in the Spirit. A lot on the doctrine of illumination and inspiration right there. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. This is, this is what was not seen in the Old Testament. That the new covenant people would not only include the covenant people of Israel, but would include Jews and Gentiles. And if you read the book of Acts, we're going to come to this in the coming weeks, Paul was tapped he wanted to be a, a, a minister to the Jews. And God said, no, you're actually going to be a minister to the Gentiles and bring Gentiles into the community of God. And he says, of which I was made, verse 7, a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, grace was given, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of I know it says Christ, but think of the Messiah. This would have sounded so strange to a Jew. Because Christ means Messiah, the messianic hope. Paul says, it was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the Jewish Messiah. And, verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration, that word's going to be used in our text in, Roman, in uh, verse 1, chapter 1 rather, an administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, our verb again, through the church to the rulers, to the authorities in the heavenly places. That's the demonic realm and the angelic realm. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom, I love this, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. You put that all in the blender and he's saying this. God gave mysteries to be revealed in the New Testament, in the gospel, in the New Covenant. Paul was a specific messenger to explain those things that have been previously hidden but now have been revealed through the inspiration of the Spirit of God even in the canonization and the writing of this book. Here, now it's back to chapter 1, verse 9. Here in verse 9, Mysterion refers to what God is planning for the future, a climactic time in history when the times will have reached their fulfillment, literally, verse 10 says. And we see this specifically, we'll see this in a moment in verse 10. It's a significant phrase because like Revelation chapter 10, verse 7 it shows that history is not a meaningless, random succession of events. In between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment in Revelation chapter 10, John records this. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then, in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment, then... 
the mystery of God is finished. Now we find something about the mystery of God in the future that Paul's going to talk about. It has brackets. It has a calendar. It has a, a limitation. The mystery of God will begin and in Revelation 10, 7, the mysterion regarding the future of God's unfolding events will come to a prophesied conclusion. Here's the takeaway. God has graciously unveiled his plan, his will, his mystery in our coming to faith in the gospel. And this will be unpacked in the rest of the book of Ephesians. And that's exactly where Paul goes in our next source of a Christian's confidence in God's future. Not only does he show us the unveiled mystery of God's will, he's going to make it known to us, but secondly, the unveiled intention of God's will. The unveiled intention of God's will. This is not a long point, but it is precious. He unveiled the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Now, there's a lot of pronouns here. His kind intention, I believe, refers to God the Father. He is God the Father purposing this kind intention in Christ. That's the second him, the second, the third, rather, um, pronoun here. That phrase should sound familiar. Look back up the page. Remember this in verse 5? He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. How? Why? According to the kind intention of his will. You see that? It tells us of God's heart. It tells us of God's disposition. It tells us of God's inclination to reveal himself and his will to us. Just as God's choice and adoption of believers is to be be his children... It was according to the kind intention of his will, so too God's making known the mystery of the future is according to his kind intention. What a disposition. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's kind. It's gracious in revealing his will to us. I love Psalm 119, verse 68. One of my life anchors. God is good and God does good. And that's displayed in how he is disposing his will to us in these verses. God's sovereignly designed grace has made known the mystery and the mystery is always attached in him, purposed in him, in Christ. Just as there is no redemption without a redeemer, there is no knowledge without a knowledge giver. There's no truth without a truth giver. We have a giving God. We find our phrase again, we see, we're going to see over and over, in him, in Christ. In giving his son to us, God the Father purposed in, through, and because of him to reveal truth to us that was hidden in ages past. And these truths included the gospel, how the church works, and the future even how marriage works, as we'll see in chapter 5. And here we're seeing a preview of the mystery of God, previously hidden, now explained, of the coming reign of King Jesus. 
there's a there's a name you're going to keep hearing over and full disclosure there's a magisterial commentary on Ephesians by Harold Honer and I just find him feeding my soul week in and week out so expect to hear quotes by him uh, in the coming time of our study I didn't want to commit to anything Harold Homer says this, Christ was the basis and goal of God's mystery. Christ himself. Christ would provide the sacrifice and thus it would be possible to culminate all things in him as outlined in the next verse, verse 10. This was the secret of God's will, listen, that could not be unraveled by human ingenuity or study. Only by revelation of God. And he's told us about his son and is telling us about the future. What a kind and purposeful, intentional disposition our God gives to us. Which leads to verse 10. And our third source of a Christian's confidence in God's future. We're confident because of the unveiled mystery of God's will. We're confident because of the unveiled intention of God's will, purposeful and kind. And now, number three, the unveiled future of God's will. The unveiled future of God's will. Now, verse 10, every word is significant, and we're going to kind of define them and put them together as best I can. Verse 10. So he's given us his will. He's done it kindly with a view to. Stop right there. With a view to. This is tantamount to saying, I'm going to take you, the Lord says, and put you on top of a hill so your view is epic. With a view to, he wants us to know and see his future. With a view to an administration, we'll come back to that, but it's the word dispensation. Don't go where I think you're going. Corresponding to or suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. At first glance, that seems like a daunting verse, doesn't it? But let's break it down, and I think it'll make sense when we look at its parts. The meaning should be evident. According to God's good pleasure, that intentionality, that disposition, he purposes, look at the end of the verse, to unite all things, heaven and earth, in Christ under one head. So there's no more presidents, no more kings. There will be a time when Jesus is the king with no other earthly rival. And the key concept here is that all things will one day be united under his headship. The wording is very specific. With a glance, a view of... Uh, a, a way to see this with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. This word for administration, oikonomia, interesting word. It's translated in, in most older translations, dispensation. But this is not a proof text for dispensationalism. Just know that. Dispensation just literally means a marked off period of time. That's what it is. A, an epic, a period of time. However, it does provide implications for our understanding of what we know to be dispensationalistic in its view of the future. As you know, at Mission Road Bible Church, we hold to a dispensationalistic, it's a word we made up, 
because we don't hold to everything that all dispensationalists teach or, you know, um, kind of the seven stages and Lewis, Sperry, Chafer. We're, we're not that brand. But we do believe that God has marked off dispensational times, periods of history in which he will rule the world with specificity. The Greek word that's translated here, administration or dispensation, speaks of management of a household, a marked-off time period. By the way, this word is never used of the eternal state, never used for heaven. It always speaks of a specified time marked off on God's calendar. And Paul says, I want to give you a view of this. Now, I know many people will say, well, eschatology, that's the study of future things. It's unclear. And there are a lot of things that are muddy that will not be exactly clear until the time of these prophesied events. But sometimes I think all of us can, we can, we can lean into copping out on that a little bit because it's more clear than you might think. And this is a very clear point of telling us what's going to happen. Paul is pointing us very clearly, with a good view, to see of God's activity of administration, a marked off time, all the verbs describing his activities are made clear here, and he's purposing in Christ a dispensation, a time, a, an administrative time that will bring the fullness of times to fruition. This idea of the fullness of times, by the way, is mentioned in Galatians 4, and it's not just the end, it's a specified thing that God's doing. Listen to Galatians 4.4, 4, which highlights the incarnation, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus as the center of God's historical plan. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time came, past tense, there's one sense in which the fullness of time already happened. When the fullness of time came, that dispensation, that marked off time of the incarnation came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under law. So part of his fullness of time, which means that everything he predicted and planned and intentionally um, uh, laid out came to fruition, came to fulfillment, part of that was in the coming of Christ. But here in Ephesians 1.10, Paul is saying that in church history, in Christian history, there will be another fulfillment in the future, in Christ. But this one will be an administration, a marked off time, a dispensation suitable, comparable to something. What, what, what does this mean? Well, let's take a step back for a moment and consider what the apostles thought about God's timetable. This is important. What did they think was coming and happening next? Well, to understand this, I want you to go over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Look over to Acts, chapter 1. We're going to talk for a minute about premillennialism as opposed to amillennialism, but can I, I want to tell you while you're turning there, the older I get, I... All of my best friends are amillennial. And uh, we, we overlap on such important parts of, of um, theology that I would not put this in the first place. Um, but I think it's important in a place like this that you understand why your elders believe what we believe and teach what we believe about the future, okay? So full disclosure, uh, I, I, 
I think that this text is a challenge to all millennialism means that we're in the kingdom right now. The reign of Christ is enacted on earth right now. After Jesus' resurrection, get this, he spent six weeks, 40 days with his disciples. 40 days teaching them. What a class that must have been. And I'm sure it was dialogical. I'm sure there were questions and answers and they kept going back and forth and they kept asking and he kept answering and he kept teaching and they kept taking notes if they, as it were because they were going to be writing the New Testament. This was important. Six weeks of personal instruction. Specifically about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. This gives us unmistakable insight as to what Jesus' first followers were anticipating regarding the next step in God's future. The fullness of the times, a new administration, a dispensation. The first account I composed, Theophilus, that was the book of Luke, obviously, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering and by many convincing proofs. He appeared to them, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, almost six weeks, and here it is, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now he gathers them together in verse 4. I think probably this was Bethany. Somewhere outside of Jerusalem, it makes sense that it would have been Bethany, maybe Lazarus' house. We don't know for sure, but that's, that's my best guess. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is just classic classic disciples Jesus inter- interaction you know Jesus is telling him at one point you know um, I'm going to go to the Jerusalem I'll suffer and I'll be uh, uh, executed and I'll rise from the dead and they say okay where do we get to sit when, when you're ruling so he's talking to them about a pretty significant event the coming of Pentecost the Holy Spirit of the church and he wants that to be the last and lasting lesson And then verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And you hear Jesus saying, "Uh, that's not what I was talking about. We've obviously had talks about that in the last six weeks, but I'm trying to get you to think about Pentecost. He said to them, it is not for you to know that time, the times or epochs, dispensations, which the Father has fixed by his own authority back on track, but you will receive the Holy Spirit, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the, uttermost, uttermost, the remotest or uttermost part of the earth. Here's what's significant. The last question on the disciples' mind was not if God was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but when. And Jesus had an ample and a direct opportunity to say, this is the kingdom. 
There is no future for Israel. This, well, this is the kingdom now. He didn't say that. He had every opportunity to correct it and said, it's not the time for you to know. In other words, there is a time for that, but I'm not going to tell you. It's not for you to know. And I tell you all that to say this. In the mind of the apostles, the next thing on their event calendar was the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. I take that as a kingdom of a thousand years called the millennial reign of Christ. But look at the end of the verse. Back to chapter 1, Ephesians 1. God promises that all things will be summed up under Christ's head. But the question becomes, when will that happen? There's a great debate between our millennial friends and our premillennial friends, whether that's the eternal state or whether that's now. Theologians disagree about the timing of this, but the accent here is on the inevitability of Christ's ruling, not the timing. So can we just be clear enough to say we should be looking for the coming king and the expression of his kingdom no matter what our eschatological inclination is? Still, I think we can draw some conclusions about Christ's coming rule. I'm convinced it will happen in two stages, two dimensions. First, there's a sense in which Christ is ruling right now in his people because of the cross, and he's ruling our hearts. He's changed us from the domain of darkness into his glorious light. This is evidenced in verse 7 with our redemption and our forgiveness. So he is ruling in the life of a believer. We see from this that all things are now during this this future summing up of all things will be subjected to Christ and we'll see in the future it'll also be through the church so when we come to chapter 2 verse 16 we find that all the spiritual powers in Satan himself were crushed by Christ's death and resurrection yet we find out in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 that Satan is still in operation The ultimate administration, dispensation, if you will, points to a time yet in the future when God is going to unite all of creation under Christ's headship in the fullness of time. The eschatological age of the Messiah's rule to which all creation looks forward to is yet in the future. Here is my question regarding thinking that we're in the millennium right now. Have you read the newspaper? This says all things are summed up and under his headship. When the fastest growing religion in the world is Islam, it's hard to see Christ as the king on his throne ruling the earth in the way that Isaiah told us he would. When he was 12 years old, one of my sons we were talking about the difference because someone has said, you know, this is the millennium versus there's one in the future. And I'll never forget what he said in the genius of a 12-year-old theology. He says, Dad, if this is the kingdom, Jesus really overstated things. And he was right. Let me just say as a footnote, I don't believe that our amillennial friends, our heretics, are in false teaching, are in massive error I think we're all going to sort this out when we see the Lord come 
We're just trying to make the best conclusions that the text allows us to have. So I think logically, the summing up of all things in Christ, see there in verse 10, the summing up of all things under his headship, under his rulership, in the heavens and on the earth, cannot be referring to this present age. Because chapter 2 is going to tell us that the prince of the power of the air is still operating over this age. All things have not been summed up in Christ in his rule as of today. The devil and his minions are still active in their opposition to God. Again, Harold Honer helps us. The earthly messianic age was promised in the Old Testament, discussed in the Gospels, not fulfilled at the ascension and hoped for by the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, Paul previews how King Jesus will one day destroy the existing powers and put all things in subjection to himself and then will hand them over to the Father. And then there's Revelation chapter 19 to 21. There, John graphically and specifically describes Jesus' final victory over the earthly earthly rulers, the binding of Satan and his rule for a thousand years. And we don't see his rule over earthly leaders and Satan bound today. One more from Harold Hunter. Am I, am I borrowing too much? The millennium, he says, and the eternal state are the final times when chaos will be removed and the universal peace of God will be established under the leadership of Christ. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11. Therefore, the fullness of time refers to the future unification of all things under the headship of Christ. It does not primarily refer to the present church age, but to the future messianic age that will be a time of restoration and harmony under one head. Important footnote. There's a time for us to talk about and defend premillennialism and and uh, to argue uh, about why I don't think amillennialism is the best representation of scriptures, that's not this time. What this time is for is this tells us that no matter what your eschatology is, you join every other believer in looking for Christ's coming and his rule. And I trust we can all hold on to that. What are the influences on your mind and how you think about the future? The news? Some people think, you know, there's God's news and there's MSNBC, opposite sides of the pole. What's your view of the news? Does it make you anxious about the future? How about the internet? Oh, I get crazy things forwarded to me all the time on the internet about what's happening, what's going to happen financially and societally. And Do you get your view of the future from social media? From friends, from family, from conspiracy theories? Here's the question. Does the future cause you to fear, to have anxiety, and to despair? Or does looking at the future... <laughs> Make you say, come Lord Jesus. Because you know and have confidence that he's coming and he's king. The critical element in this passage is the knowledge that Jesus is king in control and he's coming again. 
That should give you emotional confidence. Political confidence. Spiritual confidence. Physical and social confidence. Let me encourage you not to be taken captive by the direction of the politics and the news cycle in our, in our country. Listen, can I, can I just tell you, evil men will proceed, Paul said, from bad to worse. Probably the biggest argument against postmillennialism that we're going to keep getting it better and Jesus will come and take it after we get the, the world kind of ready for him. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Do you not see that every day all around you and on the news? So if you're looking to policies and presidents and congressmen and congresswomen in order to have hope and confidence, you will fail. You will be swallowed in dark anxiety because it is not going to end well. America is not the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God does not have an American flag by his throne we should pray for our country. We should pray for policies. We should vote our conscience. We should, do, we should be involved in the political process as we see fit. But that's not where our confidence is. Our confidence is in King Jesus who's coming again and will sum up everything in the fullness of times under his rule all on heaven, in heaven and all on the earth. No exceptions. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, Jesus wins in the end. Why are you fretting? Why do we fret? Why do I fret? I can be caught up in it. I watch a news cycle and go, oh, it's all going to go. Well, it's already gone. I mean, do we really spend more time worrying about the future of our country? and the eternal future of our neighbor who will go to heaven or hell? Where are we spending our energies, our concerns, our passions? We know how this ends and we know who it ends with. That should give us confidence. There's an old song that says something to the effect of, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Sweet as that sentiment is, I think Paul tells us we know what the future holds because we know who holds the future. We know the future. Christ is there, victorious. Let's think and act and pray and feel like his citizens of the coming, winning kingdom, regardless of what your eschatology is. And try to win as many other citizens to Christ, of Christ's kingdom through evangelism as we can.